Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. If you would like to be a sponsor of the Planetrillion Trees podcast, please see our website at theplanetrillionreespodcast.com and click on the Sponsors tab. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on February 10th, 2023. Anthony Sebastian Bucciano was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and is a third-generation Italian-American. During his summers attending university, he worked with a horticulturalist as a gardener in various parks, church gardens, residential properties, and rooftop gardens. During his studies, Anthony became intrigued with horticultural therapy. Through a directed studies program at Temple University, he participated in an internship at New York City's Rikers Island Prison Complex for the Horticulture Society of New York's Greenhouse Program. Anthony acted as an instructor working directly with the incarcerated individuals. Shortly after his internship, he graduated from Temple University with a Bachelor of Science degree in landscape architecture. After graduation, Anthony applied for an internship at the New York City Parks. Since that time, he has been working as a designer and project manager for the Capital Projects Division. His team works in the Borough of Queens, where Anthony has worked on plazas, playgrounds, triangles, ball fields, gardens, pathways, and dog parks. He continued his education while working at New York City Parks and received a permaculture design certification and took his test to receive his landscape architecture license. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Anthony. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you very much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Definitely honored after I haven't listened to all the, the podcasts yet, but from what I heard, you know, the people you're bringing on are doing amazing things and, and honored to be here. So, Anthony, we always like to start the show with getting to give you the opportunity to tell the audience a little bit more about who you are, how you got into landscape architecture, uh, where did you grow up? Did you have childhood experiences in horticulture and green things? So um, I was 
grew up, born and raised in, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, growing up, not necessarily in terms of, you know, growing up garden. The only closest thing would be, you know, seeing my mom in the backyard, you know, growing like herbs and stuff like that. But that's that's really it. I kind of came into landscape architecture later on in life. I originally wanted to go to school for art. But then after speaking with some people and having some conversations, it kind of convinced me out of it. And at the same time, someone mentioned landscape architecture to me. And I was like, let me try it out. So I took a test class when I got to Temple University. And I kind of fell in love with it. I felt like it was a good balance and uh, like a realistic career path because I wasn't like an amazing artist and stuff like that. So I was like, all right, like, let me try this out. This might be the best of, of both worlds. And the first class I did, I was really able to incorporate art. My idea was basically to partner up with the mural arts program in Philadelphia. And back when I was there, I'm, I'm not sure if it's still the case. I've been back to Philadelphia in a while. Um, there was all these vacant lots adjacent to the mural. So, you know, we developed these open spaces adjacent to the murals that could kind of, you know, mimic the themes of the murals. So like one of them was, for example, like the Jackie Robinson mural, which I loved every time I went there. So I was like, oh, let's, you know, what if we develop that space into like a t-ball field for kids and neighbors, stuff like that. So that was kind of my first experience with landscape architecture. And I kind of took it from there. And you were at school at, at Temple for landscape architecture. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Mural Arts Program has done some tremendous work. So what a great innovation. So Anthony, you finished up at Temple University and made your way back to New York City and to the Parks Department. Is that right? With some stopovers in the private sector? So during my summers, during college, I worked as a gardener for horticulturists in Manhattan. That's when I kind of started getting into plants a bit more, like backtracking to Temple, you know. I took my design classes, but also had like my Woody classes with, with Eva, actually, and other horticulture classes. And I really, I kind of became more interested in horticulture than landscape architecture, to be honest. But um, during those summers, um, in between, you know, semesters, I got a job with a horticulturist. And, you know, we would, she told me everything about it, like, the you know, pruning, planting, you know, whole nine yards. So I was, you know, learning about it in class during the year and then kind of practicing during the summer. And, you know, we maintained private residences, you know, rooftop gardens, backyards, public parks, um, church grounds, stuff like that. So I kind of became really interested in that. And I felt like that kind of influenced me and, and kind of how my design work, you know, continue with landscape architecture. But yeah, so once I graduated Temple, I got a, I, you know, I, I got an internship with Parks probably a few months after. And then since then, you know, I've been there. It's probably been about eight, nine years now. Uh, and then you mentioned working private residential uh, and also with cemeteries and, and park situations. You must have some tremendous insights on New York horticulture in terms of what works, water requirements, the abuse that might come from its good citizens. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's definitely a tough environment, especially the tree pits. That was like, I hated planting tree pits because there was, between it being so compacted and there's so many roots because it's, and it's just a small space, but then also, you know, the dogs and everything else that goes inside there. Right. Like, for example, like when we're designing at, at parks and kind of thinking about tree selection, stuff like that, all of our existing playgrounds, we kind of, it's all fill, basically. 
existing players. So we kind of assume that the shoulder is not so great. So everything we try to do is, you know, got to be resistant to, you know, dry, drought, and stuff like that. And compaction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So are you working actually as mitigators? Is that what you're doing? You're trying to mitigate what is there and then add to it so that, you know, the design is enhanced to add more trees, for example, or add more shrubs or borders. Is, is that how it works where you're located? Or do you do everything from scratch and start all over again? So at Park, so I'm basically a designer and project manager. So we... You know, we take a project all the way from the beginning to the end. Not to go too in depth on it, but basically, we kind of get scope work. You know, from the from the council members and and the community what they want, and then we kind of meet with them. We come up with some schematic concepts and plans, and we come up with a design. Whatever whatever the programming is, it could be a playground, it could be a pathway, a dog run, you know, a plaza, and then obviously within that design and programming, we we design for you know larger planting beds and tree plantings and shrubs and, and, and everything. Do you, do you work with the existing plant material that's there or do you remove all that and start over in your design? So we're the design. We also have a, a separate unit. It's a landscape construction unit. And we work with them from the beginning. So when we start a project, we go out to the site with them to do tree inventory. So it's me, the designer, a member from their team, and then a forester. So Parks has forestry departments for each borough, and then they have a central forestry department. So we all go out there. They, you know, do the inventory. They measure, you know, the DBH. They see if it needs pruning, decompaction, fertilization. So they come up with this plan. They see if we need to have any conditional removals and stuff like that. So based on that, I take that, you know, they record the structural root zones, the critical root zones. You know, I draw all those parameters on my plans, and we kind of work around that into, you know, try to have as least impact as we can on on the existing trees. If for some reason we need to remove a tree for design, that gets recorded and we have to do restitution. So it's either we pay a certain amount of money to forestry for it, or we replace X amount of trees for removing that tree. Do you do the actual tree protection zones for construction too, like the fencing that goes up? Okay, so you do all that as well. Yeah, so we'll do the tree guards if needed. We'll do, you know, protection with wood chips, plywood and mats, and any, you know, say if we need like snow fencing for like larger areas, like, you know, groves of trees and stuff like that. You really count on a collaborative effort with the other city agencies and the uh, subcontractors bring brought in. Yeah, so I mean, all the agencies that we typically work with would be, you know, DEC, um, DEP, DOT, but they don't really have too much of impact with, with our tree protection or, or kind of goals for our designs. It's just mainly to, to coordinate, to get our work done. I want to clarify one thing for our listeners since uh, New York City, Philadelphia, I guess we're about 110 miles apart from each other, and we share uh, the bittersweet reality of the tree pit which is a miserable situation for urban trees, right? (laughs) I'm from the Midwest, and my first encounter when I moved here in the uh, early 80s was, wow, you know, we're talking about something sometimes as small as three foot by three foot. Mm -hmm. Small, unrealistic, kind of an afterthought. So it sounds like you share some of the, the same frustrations in New York. 
Yeah, definitely. And every time we we start a new project and we have street trees surrounding our site, you know, we always expand the tree pits as much as we can. Yeah. Do you use structural soils in your pits, like, you know, the Cornell mix or any of those? So I haven't personally, and I know some people have used it within their project sites. I haven't seen it used on the sidewalks. I mean, not to say it hasn't been done, but I haven't personally done it. So what you do wouldn't really entail that because you're working on bigger properties. Is that correct? No, we could, we could do it. It's like, so it's actually, so we have, um, you know, our list of standard items, right. That we use in our kinds. Structural soil is one of them. I just haven't personally used it. Gotcha. Yeah. My experience with structural soils, a wonderful product uh, developed by Cornell university, but requires a fair amount of training before installation, not only with the mix, but with the actual application, I remember sitting in on a workshop and uh, wishing that I had more of a background in engineering, uh, just because of everything that went into it in terms of the compaction, the right size of the aggregate. When all is said and done, it's, it has marvelous results. I mean, there's old installations probably 20 years in where the trees are performing well and all the surrounding hardscape is is staying put it it i wish it could be used a little more easily wow yeah yeah i feel like you um even from the you know we had that from the design side but also then to i guess we kind of going off what you said is the contractor has to be familiar with it and install correctly which i don't know how many contractors have that much installing it no that's right that's one big big issue I'm wondering, I don't even know whether, I know you went to one, I've gone to one too, classes for Cornell mixes. And, you know, as arborists we do, but I wonder how many engineers and landscapers actually have access to that, that that education, which is something that, you know, we should probably look into and find out. But one of the other things we wanted to ask you is how do you select your trees? Do you have a list that you have to go off of? And then when you finally decide, do you go to the nursery and select them? Mm-hmm. So Parks has a standard list for street tree plantings. So I'll reference that list just to get some ideas. But then I'll also reference, you know, various nursery catalogs and, you know, then just our books, you know, like Durr, that's always been a good reference. So I'll reference that and then I'll, I'll kind of coordinate with our landscape construction unit just to see if it's something that's readily available as well. I don't personally go out and tag the trees. Our landscape unit does that. So basically, like I'll, I'll reference those nursery catalogs and then when selecting them, like I'll always, you know, when we're picking plants, whether it's trees, shrubs, perennials, it's got to be tough. You know, we're in the city, you know, our parks don't get regularly watered, you know, they, they kind of need to be pretty tough. So. I always look for something that can tolerate dry soils, you know, drought resistant if possible. Other things we consider is obviously the space requirement, you know, sun shade, any potential utility conflicts, whether it's, you know, underground or above ground. And then also the aesthetic, you know, each tree has an aesthetic to it and we kind of want to match that with our design and materials. But I feel like there's that part, there's, that's our responsibility to design, but then there's also the insulation and the maintenance, which is all kind of have to come together for successful planting. And one thing we have in our specification for tree planting and shrubs and perennials is the mycorrhizal inoculant and the water retention added. 
So I've used both of those back when I was a gardener. And I feel like those are kind of undervalued. I don't know. Sometimes like the contractors don't put it in. And I always like make sure that they do because it really helps, especially when you're in a scenario where your plants aren't regularly watered. That that stuff really helps, especially for the first like year or two when they're trying to get established. And then obviously maintenance, you know, you could pick the toughest plant out there, but it needs some sort of maintenance and watering, at least for the first year or so. Yeah, and they say that however many inches per caliber, that's how many years you should be watering it. Well, you know, one thought, Anthony, with all the hard work that goes in, the collaborative work with various agencies and contractors, do you ever feel like there's quality maintenance contracts in place for aftercare? Or is that just something that is unrealistic and just can't happen? So kind of a sore subject. Uh, <laughs> so we have our, you know, our design team, then we have our maintenance and operations, which they maintain the day-to-day, not only the plants, but also, you know, all the plumbing and everything else, the drinking fountains and kind of upkeep of the park. There's two different pots of funding for that. And I think historically, the maintenance department hasn't always gotten as much funding as our capital. So that's part of it. And then also the training, I think, of the personnel. That's a big thing. So we have a lot of park space and not not all of our parks have access to water. Most of them do. But then also, even if all, say all of them did have access to water, the amount of people they would need to to come and take care of the plants all the time at every park. It's just a lot of work, and I don't think there's enough workforce to take care of it. And then, you know, as a result, the planting suffer, unfortunately. I think it's a good idea, a good consideration to have private contracts with different companies to to maintain parks. Like, I was doing that when I was gardening over the summer during my college years. Like, we were maintaining public parks and playgrounds, but that's Manhattan. Manhattan has a lot of money. They have a lot of private funding that they put in to bring a, you know, a company like us in to maintain that park. You know, most of the neighborhoods in New York City and other boroughs don't have that. So I think it's a, it's a bigger thing that, that needs to kind of have a look taken at, you know? Right. Then are there landscape management plans attached to each one of your designs so that somebody can actually follow up and say, you know what, here's Anthony's design, here's the plan. How come we're not maintaining it like the plan is suggesting? So at the end of every project, when we turn over the, you know, construction's complete, we give our, you know, the planting plan to our maintenance department. I don't want to speak too much on the maintenance because I'm, I'm not in that department. So I don't really know the in and, ins and outs of, of their operations and how they kind of distribute their workforce and stuff like that. But other than handing over the planting plan and, and the schedule of like, you know, here, these are the plants that are within this park. There's no other additional you know, like maintenance direction. Documentation, yeah. Yeah, because from that point on, it's just, you just need to know what plants are there so then, you know, your personnel could properly ID what plants are what against weeds and stuff like that and, and know what you're dealing with there. Yeah, and one of the things that I learned from uh, an Italian-American who used to, when I say Italian-American, because I know that your background is Italian and engineers uh, from Italy, and he came here and got his landscape architecture degree. And he said, one of the things that I just can't understand is Americans don't have landscape management plans with their plan <laughs> and how to maintain it because that is critical. And in Europe and in, in his home country, he said that they would never have a plan without a, 
a landscape management plan to go with it. So the two of them are always married together. They, you know, it's not just a a single um, document. It's the two together. And I think we're we're getting more people to do that. Although we still have people who resist that. And, And again, you can't have a park unless you can pay for the maintenance as well. That's how they determine whether they're going to build something or not because that landscape management plan tells them how much it's going to cost them to maintain it. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand. And you get a lot of front money for your end of the deal, but what happens to the long-term maintenance of it? And I think that that's something that we really need to be more conscious of as American citizens, because you're doing all this hard work and designing. And what if somebody doesn't keep it up the way it's supposed to look? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. It's, it, they're totally connected and you can't have one without the other. Yeah, but and again, there's two separate departments, so it's hard to marry them. <laughs> yeah, and like we we work together as much as we can. But yeah, I, I, I it is that they definitely work together. And it's, I think, on a bigger level than the individual designers and individual people who maintain the parks, things need to happen. Yeah, I right. think the thing you touched on, Anthony, the job training piece, you mentioned the vacant lot that you developed here in Philly along with the mural arts program. And I've been involved with similar projects. You know, the lots are often no more than one row house wide. So that means 20 feet wide and maybe 135 feet deep. But if there's no water access, first and foremost, and if, as Eva said, no maintenance plan, you really are just going to roll the dice and hope that Mother Nature can handle it from there. Yeah, which is suffer in, in the you know urban setting. Yeah, and, and of course, what I jump to in the New York City Manhattan landscape is the High Line. Certainly no shortage of money there for the maintenance end of things, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's and, all privately funded. Private, yes. Oh, I don't I don't want to say all, but it's I I think heavily privately funded. Yeah, yeah. For a complicated site that really has a lot of specialized plant groups installed up there. I mean, it's elevated and the whole thing is essentially a elevated container. Hey, uh, I wonder if we could switch over. I I really always take an interest in the types of projects that you did at Rikers Island. And I wonder if we could spend a little bit of time talking about that. What was that like for you? I mean, you grew up in Brooklyn, you knew about Rikers probably at an early age. Share some experiences on that and hopefully be able to tell us some kind of great story if something similar is going on now. Sure, sure. So it was probably during my sophomore or junior year at Temple University. And I came across this book, I believe it's called Doing Time by this guy, James Jyler. And he was kind of head of this program at Rikers. It's called the Greenhouse Program. I read it. I was like, got really interested. It's basically about practicing horticulture therapy with incarcerated individuals. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. So I kind of looked it up. I was like, is this program still going on? And it was. It was a different person. And I was like, yeah, this, this would be kind of cool to do. And, and look into it. At the same time, I needed some more credits at it. So I wound up doing a directed study under EVA. And I contacted it. So it's run through the Horticulture Society of New York. So I contacted them to see if they were offering any internships. And they wound up having it. So I kind of sent an application. 
and stuff like that. And I got accepted for it. So I wound up doing an internship for about like two to three months over the summer. So, you know, it was it was a pretty eye-opening experience. I started reading a little bit more about horticultural therapy. And I got really interested in it. I know it's not as prevalent here as it is in Europe, at least from what I was reading. Horticulture therapy is more prevalent in Europe. Is that what at least from about? yeah, from from what I was reading, that that kind of seemed to be the case. I don't know if that's changed since then, but the program was you know it was amazing. So we basically worked with a couple different populations. There was sentence inmates, male and female, who would be there for a year or less, and then detainees who were awaiting trial and stuff like that who could be there from anywhere from as short as, you know, a few months to a few years. And Rikers Island is, is, is pretty big. And they had a few different gardens on there that had greenhouses, outdoor classroom, um, ponds that had animals, raised beds and stuff like that. So it was pretty amazing. It was, a, it was an intense experience. Also because at the same time, I was working as a gardener in Manhattan. So I was getting these two different worlds while working, you know, kind of in horticulture. One thing that, you know, based upon having those two experiences is the idea of like a process versus like end result. You know, maintaining these gardens in Manhattan, everything needs to be neat, kept up, as opposed to working over there. It's more about the process there than the end result. And you kind of like working with the inmates, teaching them things and stuff like that and kind of It's more about the experience with them and not really like, oh, this needs to get done today. And I kind of had to turn that off when I went there because I found myself like in go mode trying to get things done. I'm like, it's not really about that. It's really about kind of conversing with them, teaching them things and and stuff like that. Within horticulture, what kind of things were you doing? Was it propagation and laying out seed beds for vegetables, things like that? or Yeah, so there's a variety of things. so they had like, I wasn't there for, they do like seed starting and stuff like that. I wasn't there for that because I, I was in the summer. But plantings, pruning, you know, weeding, weeding was a big one. <laughs> kind of creating new new paths through the garden and stuff like that. We would make flower arrangements and kind of just educating them th- throughout the, the process and kind of letting them. The biggest thing for, for working with them, I noticed, is a lot of them just want to be outside. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Obviously, you know. And that, that was huge. And they just wanted to, to talk and kind of just conversing with them. And, and what I felt it was more like a, like served as a good place for them to vent, get out, spend time with some other people. Yeah, the, the therapy end of things. Yeah. You know, Anthony, I had Anthony as a directed study student and I had him do the presentation regarding Rikers for my Woody Plants class. And the students were astonished at some of the things he was showing and, and what he was talking about. I think he made a really big impression on a lot of students and realizing the potential for uh, rehabilitating people for, in prison, number one. But number two, the amount of time it takes to even get into the prison to do his work. Uh, that was another thing I remember you talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, the the hours and hours and hours of travel time and going through the layers of bureaucratic necessities, yeah. if you will, to get into the prison and, you know, to make sure that you have, you know, your background check and all that kind of stuff. And the effect that I saw at the end of the presentation that you did for the class was the fact that you did change lives while you were there. And that was really 
wonderful to see. And the students were really happy to see what you were able to do as a student and a teacher there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. You know, kind of like towards the end of it, you know, you're spending time with people, you develop relationships and like someone like, you know, you got to go already, you have to leave already. And that's kind of, you know, it's bittersweet. And some of the things that, yeah, and like the whole security thing, but it's like some days, like it depends. First of all, it wasn't like a very well-funded program and it was kind of last on the list of, of what's important there, you know? And there would be some days where we'd be waiting to get into the garden and it'd be so late that we get to the garden and like we spend like 10 minutes there when we were supposed to have, you know, more time. But some like reoccurring themes that, because while I was there, I had a pad on me all, at all times. And I would like jot down notes, like, things that I would experience and stuff like that and kind of any lessons. And then I, when I would get home at night, I would kind of journal it all out. And I kind of kept a record just to, you know, from my experience and also kind of lessons learned. And some of the things that I sort of kept, you know, seeing over and over again was what I mentioned about the process, but sensory stimulation was huge. Like, you know, smelling, taste of plants. That was like the biggest. I remember this one, this one girl, very like tough exterior, you know, and then she, she went over and smelled this rose and like she became a different person. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty fun to see. So like the process, teaching them, you know, instant versus delayed gratification with certain plants and then just, just time, you know, a garden needs time. And I feel like that's a good outlook to kind of push on them while they're there. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a great experience. Do you have a sense if the funding is still there and if anything is still going on at Rikers Island? No, I looked up the other day to see what, I haven't really heard any new news on it. I know there's been some back and forth about whether they're closing Rikers down or not. I haven't really honestly kept up to date on on that news. I'm not sure where it's at. The head of the program, this lady, Hilda Kruss, she's an amazing person. She's from Germany, actually. And she taught me a lot um, while I was there. I've tried contacting her in the past, but I haven't really been able to speak to her. I'm probably going to reach out soon to see how she's doing and, and what's going on there. But it would be a shame to see it close down, the, the program, I mean. There was a lot of controversy about whether Rikers should stay open or not. Right. Yeah, a lot of controversy. But going back to like the maintenance thing, I think this is because they had the greenhouse program and then I forget the name of the program, but they had basically had a post program where people would come out and, you know, they would train them and they would actually get them jobs in the outside world doing that type of work. So they were, those two programs were connected. I'm not sure if they still are, but it goes back to, you know, say, for example, the maintenance of parks, like that would be a good use of time, you know, training these individuals inside and then, and then having a job waiting for them outside doing the work that they were doing. So I, I feel like that could be explored a little bit more and, and taken advantage. I think that would be, would be beneficial in a lot of different ways. Anthony, I just want to take a minute and ask you about permaculture, which you've done some certification work in. If you could define it for the audience and along with that, Talk about your own relationship with backyard gardening and vegetables. It sounds like you and I might share an interest in it. And for me, it's my own form of horticulture therapy. Yeah. I think around 2015, so about a few years after I did the internship at Rikers, I came across horticulture. I think I heard about it from while I was working, while I was gardening in in Manhattan. Someone mentioned the word to me and, and kind of explained to me. So I never heard of it before. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. 
And I found there was a certification class in New York City by this guy, Andrew Faust, who's an amazing teacher. So from what I learned, like it was like a few month certification class. And we had to do a big project at the end, kind of incorporating all the principles we learned and stuff like that. In the simplest and general terms of what I think permaculture is, basically connecting people and plants. I mean, I know when people hear permaculture, they think of like homesteading and stuff like that, which it is. But I think that if you look at it from like a larger scale, it's it's basically just connecting plants and people. You know, you have people in the world that are on opposite spectrum. You know, you have like extreme conservationists, and then you have people who don't really care. And I feel like permaculture tries to bridge those two together. I love that class and that it was it was great. It definitely influenced how I design a little bit and also like my perspective on how I want to proceed professionally. Was it taught in a classroom situation or or was uh, Mr. Faust associated with an institution? So his his company is called Bioregional Living. I think I, I, I might be mis, misquoting. So he has he does classes, these these design certification classes, both in Brooklyn and upstate in Allenville, where he has kind of like a homestead there. I did the one in Brooklyn. It was in a classroom setting. Okay. We did site visits to like different places around the city, but I'm actually going to take a class coming up in spring and I'm going to go up to Allenville. I'm not going to go too deep into it, but my final project, I kind of looked at it at a broader scale as opposed to a specific homestead. And I was like, if the whole idea of permaculture is to connect plants and people, how can we do that? And I thought on a, on, a, on a major scale. So I was like, what if we, you know, I did a project permaculture and, and the New York City transit system. Just because A, you know, when you're trying to educate people, you need a big audience, you know, so mass awareness, mass transit. You know, on a public transportation, you're, you know, confined to like a set of spaces no matter what. So why not try to do something within those spaces? One, to educate, but then also to do practical things for the environment, you know, some stuff along train lines and things like that. It was a long presentation, so I'm not really going to go into it here, but that was, I kind of took a broader stroke on as opposed to, you know, very site-specific. Well, give us one example, just in terms of riding the New York City subway or something like that, or, or a major bus line. What would that look like? So for the project, I kind of split it up into where we could, you know, and then where we could do practical applications. So more education, I felt we could do underground with like advertisements and stuff like that. You know, you go into the subways in the city, there's a million advertisements everywhere. So why not take advantage of that? you know, transform some of those consumer advertisements into educational advertisements. I had a couple examples of that. Um, in terms of like practical applications, say, you know, the subway system, you know, I think 60% of it is below ground, 40% is above ground. So I was like, why don't we take advantage of that 40%? And for example, on some of the subway lines, there's all these, you know, embankments with, you know, garbage everywhere and stuff like that. Why don't we transform those spaces that can, you know, do some plantings for, you know, wildlife, you know, insects, stuff like that. Right. So those are some general examples. That's great. I love it. Yeah, that's exciting stuff. Yeah, and I, and I think people always think of permaculture as vegetables. and But permaculture that I've seen is, you know, even how, how to make a good swale or a cougar culture and uh, mm-hmm. be able to slow down water movement or to, a, to redirect water movement or to create a park that has a floor-to-ceiling layers to it so that 
not only yeah, exactly. people are enjoying it, but the animals are enjoying it. Um, you know, it goes on and on. Like you said, permaculture um, can have a lot of different meanings to different people depending on what your site is like. And I think that that's really commendable to even think about the train system in New York because that is something that very few people even think about. Mm-hmm. With the exception of the High Line being reused as a as a garden along a train track. Yeah. After that class, I, I was like hooked. And that's kind of where I learned a lot about, like you said, the Hugo culture. And then I got into tree crops and stuff like that and, and more like, perennial type growing as opposed to annual growing just as a long term yeah and i think that that's that's something that we really don't think about or tiny forest you could build a little tiny forest as part of permaculture yeah as a little area that maybe floods all the time and you build your tiny forest and there you have a whole new way to look at at a park that it has a perennial problem now it's not a problem anymore it's it's converted into usable land with plants growing on it and people can actually walk through it. I've tried to incorporate some principles from what I learned in that class to my designs at parks. Some have gone shot down, definitely. But others, you know, they, <laughs> like, like one thing I try to do, I try to incorporate some sort of edible plant in my design. Obviously, we can't do, you know, like vegetables and stuff like that. But like, I'll try to put like trees in, like say like service berry. You know, a lot of people don't know you can eat those. Those are delicious. Pawpaw. And it, it wasn't happening. The pawpaw wasn't. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't allowing that? I tried the pawpaw. That's one of my favorites. Um, yeah. But like that, you know, the service berries, nut trees, that also serve as shade trees. So you kind of kill them, two birds with one stone. For like, I had one project that did a, a baseball field. We redid a baseball field. Uh, Whitey Ford Field, Yankee. Mm. And Queens. <laughs> So we were doing natural turf and we have our standard specifications for, for lawn and stuff like that. But I was like, let's do a custom spec specification where we incorporate, you know, clover into the mix. Because, you know, clover fixes nitrogen and I'll help grow the lawn. But then also, if we don't immediately mow all the flowers, you know, that'll be a good source for, you know, bees and stuff like that. It's like little, little ways I try to incorporate here and there when I can. But that's, a, that's really great. And am I right, just to circle back, uh, are you a vegetable garden grower yourself? Yeah, so when I was, well, I'm in my apartment now with my fiance and my son, so we don't have a space to grow anything. But when I was living with my mom, we, uh, you know, she has a backyard and, you know, we would always grow stuff together. She has this old, old, old tub with the, those claw feet. Oh, yeah. We were younger. She would always grow her basil in there every summer. And then over the pandemic, I built a, like a little raised planter for her. So we grew, you know, when I was there, we grow stuff, you know, herbs, fruits, vegetables. I have a couple of apple trees back there, actually. Well, that's very fun. nice. That's fun. Yeah, well, we have to ask our question, um, Anthony, your favorite tree or group of trees that you are connected to spiritually, maybe, or just from memory? So I thought about this. It's a hard one because I have a lot of different favorite trees for different things. That's but... okay. You could explain. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So I'll, I'll give you a couple then. So um, for pure utilitarian use, like I like the swamp white oak. I use that a lot on my plant just because it's it can take everything and it's a great tree. More so fruit trees, fig tree is 
definitely home to me. You know, I grew my parents bought their house over 30 years ago um, in Brooklyn. And when they bought it, there was two fig trees in the backyard and we still have them. And they give us a ton of figs every year. And then the last one would be the European beach. And that's mainly because of you, because when we would go on our walks for Woody's, um, remember you, you specifically this day too, you took us to where you guys, um, Ambler had the European beach and you explained the self-layering that, that they do. And I thought that was such like an amazing concept because you you have this big tree in the middle and the branches are touching the ground. And then you have all these like new babies kind of growing around the circle. So I'd probably have to say that tree because that's kind of amazing. Oh, I think it's amazing. And even our American beaches need too because it grows babies underneath it, you know, um, okay. off, off the root system. And tree just trees are just fun. They They are really fun if you take the time to look at them and study them. And I know you have. And yeah, where do you go from there? Yeah, I find myself the happiest when I'm up there. Like we were talking about cemeteries like Greenwood. My dad is buried in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. And every time I go there, I'm at peace. Like I could go, I could be in the worst mood ever, just, you know, whatever. And as soon as I get into there, everything is fine. That sounds like the best definition of permaculture I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah. Well, it was a delight to have you on, Anthony. We're thrilled that you could be with us today and talk about your profession. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And uh, you guys are doing a great thing. Like, you know, you're not only educating people, like not only audience, but you know, you're educating people like me who you're bringing on. I'm from listening to what other people do and it's kind of amazing. And you guys, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but you're kind of creating, you know, a professional network with built in what a built in referral system with you guys, you know. And I think that's pretty neat. You know, you have you're bringing all these professionals on and now we hear each other and we can always reach out to each other and kind of build upon that, which I think is pretty amazing. Yeah, we have a term for that. It's called uh, rhizomorphic networking. Yes. <laughs> that's, that, that's good. I like but, that a lot. But thank you but, for the compliment and and actually the clarification that it is uh, a networking opportunity for people. Yeah, and yeah, I, I, have to, I have to add to this that um, Friday, the Longwood Professional Horticulture students had their Today's Horticulture. Um, and they had contacted me and asked if they could have David Bankston on. Uh, as part of their panel or their program because they heard it on the podcast. And I actually had a chance to meet him in person on Friday, which was really wonderful, uh, the futurist. And people were blown away by his presentation. They really were. And I was really happy to have met him. And again, making connections and staying connected is really important. And I, I I feel blessed that I could be connected with you, Anthony, from... Uh, being a student from years ago. Yeah, same, definitely. And I feel blessed that I could spend an hour with a Yankee fan. <laughs> <laughs> For there a civilized conversation. For a civilized conversation, yeah. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> well, listen, take care. Again, thanks again. All right. Thank you. Guys. Yeah, best, best of luck to you. And I hope we meet sometime. Thanks, Anthony. Yes, we will. We will, definitely. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.
Thank you.